Hey everyone, welcome back to the Wisdom Collective. I'm Adam Crow, and today I am on with Dan Scheffler. Dan is a professor at the University of Georgia, or excuse me, no, Georgetown College. I always mix yeah, that Georgetown up. Georgetown College. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say University of Georgetown. Anyway, how you doing, Dan? I'm doing great. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we'll get some introduction stuff in, and, and that'll help us understand where we're going uh, today. But um, you're a professor there. You teach lots of things like ethics and uh, philosophy. You also overlap a lot with more explicit theology. You teach medieval philosophy and theology, right? And what else are you teaching at university? Gosh, at Georgetown uh, I, I College. Teach, yeah, Georgetown College. Georgetown yeah, College. Yeah. It's in Kentucky, not the not yes. the one in D.C. Um, I teach logic. I teach uh, ancient uh, philosophy. I do a lot on Plato and Aristotle, early Christians. Um, uh, and, and I also do... 20th century Catholic personalism, Dietrich von Hildebrand and, and that kind of stuff professionally, but uh, they, they don't have a course on that. So uh, that's, that's just what I do sort of Was outside that, of class. Where did you, what did you do your PhD in? Was it in that um, or something around that? Uh, yes, both. And it's specifically on the metaphysics of personhood in Plato. So a sort of architectonic long-term project that I've had is the history of the concept of person, which we tend to take for granted in modern thought, but it might be a revelation to many people that uh, we didn't always have this concept of person. We used to, we, we, we had in, in the ancient world, they had the concept certainly of an individual human being, uh, but this specifically modern notion of the person, this free uh, locus of dignity and worth and moral agency, uniqueness, irreplaceability, um, that, that really actually starts with Christian thinkers. And uh, I make the case that it's rooted in Trinitarian theology. Yeah, I would, if I can like see that or experience, I don't know if that's like a published work, that would be awesome. I'm really interested in that idea, especially as it relates to Trinitarian theology. So that would be awesome. But that won't be so much what we talk about today. So uh, that's a lot of your bio. You do a, a ton of awesome stuff. What I love about you, Dan, is um, I've listened to, um, you have a, a handful of like lectures and other interviews online, but um, you also do these little 10 minute talks you've been doing on big, uh, complicated at times, like Greek philosophical ideas um, that like you were just talking about, there are things that we sort of assume as moderns and we just don't even have words for sometimes. Um, but you sort of, give them a wide and full breadth um and what's great about it is a lot of times people in your job um they do more complicating than they do clarifying you know and <laughs> that they're going through these <laughs> yes. complicated like philosophical ideas and you need to learn a whole new language to understand it and some of that's good and great but you have a gift of just kind of making it practical so i hope it didn't oversell you there uh but we'll try and do some of that today we'll try and um we'll try and unpack some of these Greek and philosophical ideas that are deeply, um, I don't know what we want to say, tangled up in Western culture, especially. Um, but we'll try and unpack some of those and understand them more clearly with you, the resident expert, you know. So um, maybe a couple that we can deal with first, one that you've been talking about lately, is these ideas of cosmos and logos, or we could flip that and say logos and cosmos. Um, what in the world do those ter terms mean and why do they matter um, for the modern person? Right, of course. Uh, so, so cosmos. If if I, you know, there's that old Carl Sagan uh, documentary series on the cosmos, and so when we say that word in English, we tend to have this sort of stars and planets and galaxies and that kind of thing. 
Um, but the, the Greek word, it actually is related to the, the root cosmain, which means to arrange or to put something in order. And uh, a lot of people might be surprised to learn that it's related to the English word cosmetology. If you're going to go to a cosmetology school or uh, go to the drugstore and buy some cosmetics, right? Because that, that verb can mean to arrange your hair, to arrange your makeup, to arrange your jewelry or your outfit, right? That, that would be a cosmos, an arrangement of nice, orderly, put together face and presentation. But it could also be the arrangement of furniture in a room. It could be uh, the arrangement of, let's say, streets in a city. You know, if you're an urban planner, the, the goal is to make your city into a cosmos. Mm -hmm. have, it, have it have some kind of order, some sort of structure, some sort of uh, arrangement. And so a, a fundamental conviction of Greek thinking that goes all the way back to the pre-Socratics uh, before Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and, and whatnot uh, was that the universe is a cosmos, that the whole thing, all of reality is a systematic ordering, that everything has been arranged, everything has a place and therefore has meaning in that arrangement. And it's like a fractal. You know, I know Jonathan yes. Peugeot talks about that, right? That uh, at every level, you've got little cosmoi. You have little arrangements, but they all add up to a single arrangement. Sort of grand. Uh, now, you also asked yeah. about the word logos. Um, uh, these two concepts are related because logos uh, in a, at least one of its meanings. Famously, Logos has like 17 meanings if you look it up in, <laughs> in a Greek dictionary, you know, and it, sometimes it's a little bit hard to see how they all fit together. Um, but, but one of the core meanings of Logos is that it is the principle of organization in a thing. It is the intelligible pattern in a thing. Uh, so uh, the, uh, an illustration that I often use with my students is DNA. If you think of a tree, how do we get from an acorn to a full-grown oak tree? And furthermore, how is it that every time you plant uh, an acorn, you're going to get an entirely different tree. The branches are all going to grow in a unique way every single time. It's going to be different. And yet somehow they're also all the same. Right. There's a pattern. There's some sort of intelligible structure, I'll use that, that mm -hmm. phrase, um, there that makes an oak tree different from a maple tree. And we can come along and we can recognize that pattern. And where is that? Where is that encoded? How, how does the acorn know to, to, to grow in this particular pattern? Well, we now know scientifically today that it's in the DNA, that, that, that there's instructions, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, embedded in the seed. And so uh, the, the, the Greeks, they didn't know about the molecule DNA, but they, they knew the basic truth of that, which was that there's some sort of inner nature in the acorn. There's a logos to what it is to be an oak tree. There's some sort of intelligible pattern and that's inside the acorn and it's going to always unfold in that particular way. And so uh, the key sort of truth to grasp is that every cosmos necessarily has a logos. Okay. 
every systematic arrangement or ordered whole in the whole universe, and maybe the whole universe as a single thing, mm -hmm. uh, if it's got an arrangement, it has to have some sort of principle of arrangement, an yes. intelligible cause, a DNA, so to speak, to, to give it that ordering. And I can hear a pushback to this to being something like um, the seemingly, and I think we're finding out more and more that they're not uh, as much anomalies as much as they're things we don't totally understand, whether it's like quarks or black holes or different things and different things like, like quantum levels, right? And ideas. Um, those still have a level of predictability to them though, right? Like, I mean, it, even though they're, um, they seem to break rules, there's a predictability that they'll break rules. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, mm -hmm. It, it doesn't feel, even where I feel like, what would the pushback to that be? Or what is like, is there a hole in that? It's like, I don't think so. Because even there, it seems like, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, there, there's, there's sort of two regions for pushback. Um, one is the way in which the order of the universe continually exceeds our, what we have already figured out. Right. I mean, every scientific advance, every new discovery is a case of us pushing into the unknown and discovering a kind of order or a logos that was there all along and we just didn't understand it. And in fact, we find out that the, what we thought we had understood turns out to be not quite right. Right. So that's one way of pushing back is to then you, you can sort of raise this skepticism to say, well, then how are we so confident now that we have anything really figured out? And I think the response to that is to say, well, look, nobody's claiming that our current human conception is perfectly mapping on to the objective logos of the universe. But still the fact that we're reaching out with science and attempting to discover what are the underlying laws betrays a basic faith that there are underlying structures to be right. discovered. Right, 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 right. So we can in humility admit that we might not have it all figured out. We might not know completely what those structures are, but we do think that we're getting at something that really is out there, right? Yeah. Now, the second place of pushback that you mentioned is, is with uh, a lot of modern uh, physics, we have these really kind of spooky areas where it seems like things um, become indeterminate or random in ways that we uh, didn't think they were before. You know, in, mm -hmm. in Newtonian mechanics, everything is kind of perfectly predictable. If, yeah, if we had a reaction, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if we had a big enough computer, we could perfectly predict exactly how this system is gonna unfold, okay? But in quantum mechanics, the idea is that that's not, it's not quite so, okay? So sometimes people push back and say, aha, the, see, the, the universe is really actually fundamentally chaotic underneath. There is no logos, it's, it's this rant. But that's actually just, I think, a straightforward confusion and misunderstanding of quantum mechanics and uh, recent discoveries in physics. Because although there might be indeterminacy at some level, that indeterminacy still operates within, as you said, some sort of predictable uh, structure. So while there might not be a determinate definite location for an electron, for instance, there is still a bell curve of probability for the, the probability that that electron will be at, at any given location. And that bell curve is a highly defined mathematical structure. Yeah. It is a logos, okay? So it doesn't have quite the same 
kind of determinacy as we had before but a greek would look at that and say yeah that's still a logos man like <laughs> you still have some sort of organization you still have some sort yeah. of principle of of structured reality yeah no that's good and even within that like you said there are some things i'm certainly a layman about this but uh there are some things uh looking at it that um at, on the quantum idea for example there are some things that we're discovering now let's say today that five maybe 10 years ago, but even just five years ago, we had like, this makes zero sense. And now we have a firmer understanding of it. And so there is some of that sort of going into the unknown, like you said, like we tend to do with these, with the discoverable logos. Um, there is something that's interesting with, you were talking about, like, we're talking about the discoverable logos, the sort of uh, innate or intrinsic, like intelligibility to something like DNA. It's not something that we make with a level of intentionality. It just seems to be there. But then you were talking about, um, so I want to clarify something. When it comes to like city planning and things like this, where we're kind of mm -hmm. being logos makers, or I don't know, what is that? Like, so how mm -hmm. would you clear that up when it's not a discovered thing, but a made thing, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things about us as rational beings, okay, mm -hmm. so uh, one of the Greek words that could be translated as rational is logikos. Okay, so you can see the, the, the connection there. Or sometimes Aristotle actually tends to prefer saying uh, logon echein, to have logos. We're the sort of being that has logos within us. Uh -huh. uh, okay. So we have this capacity not only to discover logos that's already there in the world, uh, but also to inventively create new things and give logos to those things. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a, logo, a, a structure, an intelligible form uh, that we come up with. Um, I like Tolkien's language for this in, in his famous essay on fairy stories, where he calls us sub-creators, that we're, we are in a certain way imitating God's imposition of structure onto the universe when we create uh, stories, when we fashion our own uh, mythic worlds and these kinds of things. Hmm. And it's a, it's an imitation. I'm not trying to correct you here, but uh, it's also a participation, right? So it's a participation mm -hmm. in that the logos, and then we are sort of the fractal and the, the micro uh, versions of that, right? So in that so much of, it seems like in the biblical idea of there's a lot of things that come along with being made in the image of God, right? It doesn't have one application, but this is one of them, right? What you're talking about, that we are sort of mini logos makers or at least we have the capacity to do that right that's mm -hmm. part of what it is right in the image of god mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, I i think so and i like that language of participation i'm a platonist so uh okay. i think uh, <laughs> at every level of reality things are what they are by participating in a higher reality uh <laughs> you want to you should but, uh, well do you want to share that's about controversial that? so no 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 well if it's too if it's too touchy don't but do you want to share about that a little bit i think that would be interesting because um, I want to, at each of these moments, I want to talk about this and also like subjective and objective truth and some other things with uh, logos and intelligibility that you've been talking about. All of that sounds like uh, gobbledygook philosophy talk to some of the listeners, right? So participation, though, that's getting some feet to the pavement. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's involving us mm -hmm. now and it has some practicality to it. Do you mind sharing about some of that? Like you, you mentioned, yeah, so but yeah. The way that, uh, the way that Platonist, use the word participation it's kind of a technical term right 
so the idea is that if, if you have any individual reality, what, we, uh, what the Platonists call a concrete particular, that concrete particular is what it is by participating in form, okay? Mm. So classic example here would be with beauty, okay? That if I have a particular beautiful painting, that particular beautiful painting does not exhaust the whole meaning of beauty. It's uh -huh. one particular yeah. manifestation of beauty, but when, when I say that painting's beautiful, I'm not saying that's all that there is to beauty. Moving on. And yeah. when <laughs> we notice the vast range of completely different kinds of things that also are beautiful. So statues can be beautiful. A song could be beautiful. My wife is beautiful. Uh, in another completely different way, like you could even have a beautiful experience over dinner, right? You could have a beautiful um, uh, sort of drama. So a, a sequence of events might be beautiful, okay? And so what we say is that all of those things have something in common that makes them beautiful, as, as different as they are there is something that we see coming out in each of them. And so the platonic way of saying that is that each of the beautiful things, uh, and actually sort of in Greeklish, you would say each of the beautifuls, uh -huh. <laughs> plural, participates in the beautiful itself. Ta, auta, kalon. Okay, the, yeah. the beautiful itself. Yes. Okay. Um, and, and that's how we account for the, that structure, that, that, uh, that logos <laughs> that we see coming out in all of the different things. Yeah. Yeah. And all of this, I mean, speaking like Christian pastor here, all of this, this is interesting because it makes um, things like, so I'm Christian pastor, but I'm in more of a Protestant slash even jellyfish-ish kind of non-denominational world, you know, where I'm at, uh, which has benefits, but also has deficits and hard things that come with it. Um, anyway, um, with that, uh, we tend to think of like sharing the gospel or teaching someone about God or these different things. Um, in very linear kind of one-dimensional things. It's verbal plenary. It's like sort of mind in, mind out stuff. And that is an aspect. And there's like a sacrament to that even, right? Like the word, right? Jesus is the word, right? Maybe, and you have lots of thoughts about that too, because that's logos, right? But anyway, mm -hmm. uh, at the risk of rabbit trailing, um, the idea that a painting, good literature, these different things could be pathways toward, uh, you need a clear articulation of Christ, obviously but that those could be pathways toward the good or the beautiful or, you know, as you're putting mm -hmm. it, um, that, that, is that lining up? Am I like talking crazy here? I mean, it seems like, or I don't, you know, is that a, that's a critique I feel like I would have for like the world that I'm swimming in as far as church goes, but um, is that legitimate? Should those be pathways for us? Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things uh, I think to, to recognize is when we say, when we use this pathway language, you know, th there's sort of an ambiguity or a confusion that might might be possible. You might think, okay, these things 
are some sort of their, their means or their tools for me to somehow get beyond those things uh, and to, to this deeper thing. I'm going to go th through the painting or the song or the sculpture or the story or whatever. Uh, and then once I've used it up, so to speak, I've used up that fuel, they're, they're no longer useful to me. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the platonic perspective, is, and this is the whole idea of participation, is that that sculpture, insofar as it is participating in beauty, it really is beauty right here and now in that sculpture. Right. So you are having an actual encounter with internal beauty right here and now in the sculpture. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're able to recognize that the sculpture is not the fullness of beauty. Limited, it doesn't yes. exhaust mm -hmm. the way that the, the infinite ways that beauty could manifest itself and does manifest itself in all of these things all around you. No, that's, that's a good clarification. That is, yeah, that's a really good clarification, especially the, uh, the sort of, I used it and now it's not, it, it's so, it's so me centered, you know, when you talk about it like that, cause it's like, mm -hmm. uh, you use was, it up and throw it away. Yeah. Exactly. Consumer. It, it couldn't be a con yeah, consumer. Exactly. That it couldn't be a continued interaction and enjoyment of God or the divine or, you know, you know, whatever. And it's like, it, why would it lose its use just because you used right. it, you know? Oh man. Yeah, that is, yeah. that's consumer. Creep and I want to, sure. I want to jump in and I, I think I made a Greek mistake earlier. And okay. so somebody, somebody's going to call me out on this. <laughs> Right. I said ta ta kalan, which would actually be the same beautiful thing. Uh, so okay, okay. the beautiful itself should be ta ta kalan. You put the ta outside of the uh, article. <laughs> so for any uh, Greek students out there, there's a, there's a difference. <laughs> yeah. And good catch, because you're right. It, only Greek students would care that much about uh, an obvious small error like that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, that's good. Um, so... Uh, well, this is interesting then. Okay, so um, we talked actually about how some of this could apply like at feet to pavement on like something like beauty. Um, that's a great example. And even down to city planning, but why? Well, actually before, I wanna talk about two things. So let's try to remember, why do these things matter to like the everyday person, right? So I wanna I want talk like, or in your opinion, what's the biggest reasons they matter? Um, but I'd also love to talk before we move there on this participation idea, this is super interesting to me. Um, what would the antithesis to that be? Or what, if you say like, you're that you're like into this participational idea, what is not that? And is that like kind of, is most of culture not that, or is most of culture participation and doesn't know it? Like, help me understand kind of what's going on there. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's tricky. Um, I think there are a couple of, of different alternatives to a participationist metaphysics okay uh now probably the most we'll, we'll start with the easiest and most obvious one and then i'll i'll move to one where i have a little bit of an axe to grind <laughs> um the most obvious contrast to the platonic realist perspective would be either nominalism or subjectivism would be a term that you would hear uh more frequently so nominalism was a movement that got started in the late Middle Ages. It's frequently associated with uh, William of Ockham. You might have heard of Ockham's Razor. Okay, uh, this morphed into uh, a lot of the early modern philosophies, and there's a whole 
narrative to tell there. I recommend the book uh, by Richard Weaver, Ideas Have Consequences, that sort of walks through that, uh, that history quite briefly. Even, uh... and, and some of that's controversial. So we, you know, we don't have to talk too much about the history. Uh, but we, we end up today with uh, subjectivism and the idea that none of these structures, none of these patterns, none of these qualities that we attribute to things are really in the things themselves. Instead, all of that intelligibility, all of that meaning really just resides in our own consciousness. And we are projecting that meaning out onto uh, the world of our experience. So the sort of simple example of this would be uh, to say, you know, I, I, I climb up the mountaintop and I finally get to the top of the mountain and I look out over the valley and there's this sunset. I almost used the word, okay, there's this sunset and it's got these striking colors of red and blue and, and gold. And I, in that moment, project onto that experience from my vantage point the beauty of it. And I say, wow, that's beautiful. But really what I'm saying is I am having a beauty type experience right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the idea would be that before I came out of the trees, before there was ever anybody on the mountaintop to see the sunset, the sunset wouldn't have been beautiful. It was just, mm -hmm. you know, raw frequencies of light being scattered through the atmosphere mm -hmm. and there's no observer of that so there's no beauty okay now um i think that that's a very dangerous idea and the the place i would i would sort of really push back is okay so maybe beauty morality uh, the sanctity of life or something like that, that gets us like sort of immediately into fights about which movie is the best and should we enact these laws, okay? And that's kind of, and I think a lot of people, they, they jump to subjectivism because they, they don't like fighting about politics and morality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they're looking for a way out, way out to say, well, that's just sort of what you think over there. And well, I have, a diff I have different taste. I happen to like different things. I find different things beautiful. Because you can but I, so what I, what I yeah. Yeah, what I yeah. tend to do is just sort of bracket all that. Say, well, well, okay, forget beauty, forget morality, forget all the value stuff, the controversial stuff. Let's just talk about scientific structures. Because I found that most people in our culture tend to be realists when it comes to science, mm -hmm. right? So let's just talk about the, that structure of oak trees, the DNA of the oak trees. It, am I making that up? Is that just being projected into the oak tree by the human mind? Or is there really a DNA in the oak tree? Or the structure of a water molecule? I use that in, in one of my videos, right? Did, are we just projecting onto water molecules the chemical bonds between hydrogen and oxygen and the ratio of two to one, right? Or is that really in the water molecule? And so when you use scientific examples, people are, I tend to, in my experience, tend to be pretty quick to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, that's really in the world. We're not just making that up, okay? And so I think if you can get off the ground and just establish the basic metaphysical principle, okay, now, now we can have a further conversation about beauty in particular or something like that, okay? Yeah. But people get it all muddy because they start with the controversial examples before they really understand 
the the deeper metaphysical principle that's being claimed mm-hmm. okay now the where i had an axe to grind okay yes. uh, a lot of people will contrast the platonic view of participation with the aristotelian view now aristotle's not a subjectivist he's not saying that we're projecting this uh these structures onto things uh but the sort of standard interpretation of aristotle is that uh, he thinks, Plato thinks that forms are up in heaven somewhere, and Aristotle thinks that form is in the things, and that there is no transcendent uh, reality that they're participating in, okay? Um, now, where I have the axe to grind is I just think that that's a misreading of Aristotle. Um, okay. I'd recommend the book by Lloyd Gerson, Aristotle and Other Platonists. Um, I think on a good reading of Aristotle, you find that Aristotle, in the most important respects, is a Platonist. He, he actually is committed to transcendent form. Uh, it, when you look in Metaphysics Book 12, I think he is committed to ultimate, internal, uh, intelligible reality. And on the other side, Plato also admits that there, are, that there is imminent form, that there is the structure in the things themselves uh, that we've been talking about. It's just that those structures in the things themselves, they are what they are by participation in something higher. So yes. at the end of the day, I, I think Plato and Aristotle end up saying essentially the same thing, although they disagree on, you know, a number of different details. But on that in particular, they're just nuanced. They're like a little bit different in the way they're articulating it, but they're essentially saying close to the same thing. Yeah, that's good. Right, right. On, um, I don't know if, it is, if this is a theological uh, connection to make, but there's something about what you're talking about there and... Um, I don't, maybe this even gets into the ideas of Trinity and incarnation and stuff, but God is um, at the level of experience, like at once both transcendent and eminent because, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's both in the incarnation, right? Because he's fully God and fully man. And so um, how did, and I'm trying to connect where this can go, but I, we view Jesus as, in, in Protestant circles, oftentimes, and I'm again speaking from where I'm at and some of my audience will be here, we tend to view Jesus as sort of an answer to the sin problem and these lots of different things, but we, we sort of rob him of his creatureliness. We're very good at getting the divine Jesus right, but almost to the exclusion of the, the human, like the son of man. You know? And um, he's the second Adam. Like Paul has this whole argument about that that he builds out, especially through Romans, but through his letters. Um, but is there something about that and, and what is that or what's going on? How do you, when talking about Trinity, when talking about incarnation, when talking about the transcendent imminent reality of God, like the both and there, how do you not get into a weird place where you're essentially talking about two different gods or like weird modalism things and different things like that? How do you, how do you avoid that? You've written on this. You've been thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah. So back, uh, circle back around to where we, where we first started, I think the, uh, the secret, the key, is the idea of person. Uh, the the, the uh, Cappadocian fathers introduced into the discussion of Trinitarian doctrine the word hypostasis. And there's a, there's a whole background of the word. But it used, it, hypostasis uh, used to mean the same thing as usia. So hypostasis is what's translated as person. Usia is typically translated as essence. So when we say God is three persons and yet one being, uh, we're saying he's three hypostases and one essence, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, 
And it's introducing that term, that category into the discussion that starts to make Trinitarian theology um, actually sort of worked out, have the logic of it all be worked out. And then we flip it around when we get to Chalcedon in the, in the 450s, and we say that Jesus is one hypostasis in two natures, fully God and fully man. Okay, so the way that we make it all make sense without saying that there are three gods or saying that there are two Jesuses is this, this, cat, this key concept of hypostasis. And we probably can't go into all of it uh, of right now. I mean, books and books and books have been written on it. Um, there's chapters in my uh, dissertation that, that deal with this concept. I, I actually have an article that's coming out like should be in the next week or so in the journal Quaestiones Disputati on uh, this notion hypostasis. Yes. Um, and, but but I, I, that's where I would point. I would say you got to get that concept. If you don't have the concept of hypostatic personhood, all of these things in Christianity are going to remain a mystery to you. Yeah, and how does that, that's excellent. So how does that inform um, our understanding of person is Adam's a person, Dan's a person, right? All of this. Um, mm -hmm. But at what points is that a one-to-one -one comparison about what you're talking about when you say person in this, there's a hypostatic union and hypostasis and all these things you're talking about. Um, at what point are those like one-to-one -one comparisons? Because we're, like we said, we're made in the image of God. So maybe there are some, but then at what points is it, our understanding of person help us misunderstand maybe these other like big theological ideas? Do you have some distinctions there? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so typically when we use the word person in just contemporary English and we say, okay, Tom's a person and Joe's a person. Okay, we really just mean a human being, right? Like a individual of the species, of the biological species, human. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was actually, I was driving in the car and I noticed my kids using the word in this way. And because I'm, you know, this is like my hobby horse. I was like, huh, <laughs> I found it interesting that they just sort of uh, automatically fell into this way of using the word because they were talking about uh, animals. Right. And they, they, there's some sort of imaginary animals in like red wall or whatnot. And then uh, um, they were talking about another character and I think it was my daughter said, no, but he's a person, <laughs> right? And what she meant by that was he's a human being. He's not a squirrel or a badger or, or something, okay? Um, but in a certain sense in the story, you know, in Narnia, all the animals are persons. Mm -hmm. You know, they're moral agents, they're free, they're, they're rational, they, they're interacting, right? Uh, so it just shows a, a gap in the way we normally deploy that word and the theological meaning. Now, even with that theological meaning though, okay? So once we've specified that by person, we don't mean just individual of the human species, we mean a, um, okay, well, it gets complicated. <laughs> let, me take, let me take one step back because we have the Greek word hypostasis in the theological tradition. And then we have the Latin word persona, which was used to translate hypostasis. Hypostasis actually just means a concretization of a nature, okay? So anytime you have a general nature, like oak tree, we've, we've been using oak yeah. tree, and you have a concretization of that general nature into this particular oak tree, 
yep. that's a that's a hypostasis. So it actually makes sense in Greek, even with the theological term, to say that hypostasis of the oak tree. Yeah. But when that comes over into the Latin tradition and they decide that persona is the best way to translate this term, okay, it doesn't make sense to refer to the oak tree as a persona in Latin because persona doesn't just mean individual concretization of a nature. It means individual concretization of specifically a rational, spiritual nature. So this is where we get the famous Boethian definition that a person is an individual of a rational nature. Okay. Yeah. So that brings in all of these concepts of being made in the image of God, of having morality, of being free, of being unique, irreplaceable, whatnot. And that continues on in the Latin tradition. And there's, all, there's also another kind of continuation in the Greek uh, yes. tradition. Yeah. And that's sort of uh, uh, geographically regional, like where those two traditions kind of formed and firmed up. Right. But um, mm -hmm. what is, has there been, um, has there been sort of impacts, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds so you can just say it's too complicated and that's for another show, but has there been impacts where we've sort of have shifted or where are we at? Are we on the Latin side or the Greek side? Are we sort of a weird amalgam of all of them? Um, and how has that affected our understanding of what it means to be a person? Because it's so interesting to me to think about this stuff, Dan, and to think that there was a time where, I'm not saying people didn't have an imagination for it ever, but that the general shared sort of common sense knowledge of what it was to be a person wasn't all those things you said, like unique individual, irreplaceable, all these things. Like, like the idea of an individual or individualism is it's so common sense to me because it's just the world I am in, it's the air that I breathe. But to imagine there was a time where that wasn't the case, it feels unimaginable. I don't even, it's hard mm -hmm. to have a category for it. So anyway, some of what you're talking about seems like it's, it's washed out and impacted us to today, right? In Western mm -hmm. culture. So there's certainly some Latin there, but um, are we basically the Latin version of that kind of dichotomy you drew or do we have amalgam of them or? Well, in, in Western countries, yes, I think just sort of we're, we're so steeped in that Western tradition. Uh, but I think in a lot of ways we've drifted from that, right? So you, you threw out the term individualism, right? Um, some of the some, some 20th century <clears throat> writers on this stuff like to draw a distinction between personalism and individualism to sort of uh, highlight the way that it might start with that Christian category of person, but then it starts to drift and go to another extreme. Okay, uh, or some writers like to draw a distinction between a person and an individual. So just etymologically, the word individual. Uh, comes from, you know, you've, you've got a genus species tree. So you've got animals and then you divide the category animals down into like mammals and reptiles and birds. And then you divide mammals down into like primates and canines or whatever. And then you divide that down into like humans and chimpanzees. And then you divide humans down into Adam and Dan. Yeah. Okay. And then you can't divide anymore, right? You can't chop it up. You can't separate anymore. So you get down to the individuum the thing that cannot be divided anymore, all right? Yeah. But the, uh, the idea is that that concept is a purely negative concept. It's that I am what I am as an individual by being divided off from you, that I've now separated from you, okay? Whereas persona, uh, since it's, it receives its primary definition in Trinitarian theology, 
persons always are what they are in relation to another person. So the father is the father of the son. The son is the son of the father. The spirit is the spirit of the father, right? Mm -hmm. uh, th so the, the capital P persons of the Trinity, their personhood is always understood relationally. Yes. Right. And not by sort of dividing and cutting off and separating from from each other, right? Uh, so I think that yeah. that's one way in which Western, the, the Western concept, it's like we've understood something in the Christian tradition about dignity, the dignity of each person, the uh, freedom of each person, okay? That, that's, that's a, a precondition for moral responsibility and, and spiritual dignity, uh, the irreplaceability of each person, that I can't just I can't just swap out my wife for the next model, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, or for just some other woman yeah. who happens <laughs> to have her a similar name or look like her, right? It's like, no, no, no I'm married to her mm -hmm. in particular, okay? But then we've, we've gone, I think, uh, a, a, a bad route. And a lot of our great sins in this culture have to do with uh, freedom becoming an obsession with autonomy, uh, with the insistence on dignity be becoming a narcissistic insistence on my own rights, uh -huh. right? With uh, recognizing the, uh, the, the problems with totalitarianism or what can happen when the community uh, sort of eliminates the person, that turns into atomistic individualism where I don't want to have anything to, I, I don't have any responsibility to the community. I want to be cut free from all bonds of uh, responsibility. Uh, I, I don't need you. Uh, I am who I am, independent of any uh, relationships, all of that, all of that kind of stuff that we see with individualism. Yes. No, that's so good. And um, I think there's an interesting connection to our cultural moment and so much of what you're talking about there, Dan. We were talking before about the idea and some of how we got here is this idea that God is at once imminent and or in transcendent. He's this, this both and, and he's more than that, but he's certainly that um, for sure. And so, and another thing we were talking about is the Trinity and also the incarnation, but at the Trinity, God is at once the perfect individual and also the perfect many. And the harmonization of that is community, right? Um, or, you know, love is the way John would put it in his epistle or in his letters. Um, that God is love. And then I, I believe it's Augustine. He, he kind of picks up on that idea and trying to explain the Trinity. I believe this was him. He says that if God is love, the father is the lover, the son is the beloved and the spirit is the love communicated. Right. And it's like, okay, so now I'm getting some, like, again, some tangible handles on how this matters or what it means. And I, so this is where I'm going to kind of throw a thought out there and you can agree or disagree with it out loud if you'd like. But, um, there's that quote by, it's from the parable of the madman by Nietzsche. And it's like, God is dead and we have killed him. That's sort of the summation of or the mm -hmm. takeaway, right? And it's a tragic thing because our meaning making structures are going to be gone and all the rest. And, and the solution might be that we just need to make our own meaning or whatever. So um, I don't think that worked, but also <laughs> the, um, some of the idea there, um, I think that analysis is somewhat true at the level of culture, right? That our, we have, we have taken away the shared identity, at least, or the shared meaning-making structure being God. We want it to be something like the state or something like a separate thing. We want literal separation of church and state um, at every way. 
Some of that has tons of benefit, obviously. Um, but what's interesting is that human beings are deeply religious. And if God is dead and we have killed him, we're going to find a new religion. And politics has become that in so many ways. And this is the way I'm mm. seeing it, Dan. Um, I think the right, let's say, if we were to do a partisan take on it, I think so much of the right does a really, really good job at the thing you were talking about there with the responsibility angle. Um, yeah, responsibility, let's say. And the left does a really good job, or maybe not really good job isn't the best way of putting these. They have a really good focus on responsibility. And the left has a really good focus on rights. And uh, sometimes it seems like to the exclusion of one or the other. And I hope everyone listening is able to follow along with my rambling on this. But the solution in my mind to this is something like community, is something like reunion. And just like within the Trinity of that mm -hmm. love is defined in not just an individual, but individual and many that are living in harmony of community. Um, as I've been thinking about this and trying to figure it out, it's, it makes God in a very interesting way, the solution to so much of our hypertension, hyperpolarized problems that we're engaging with, right? Um, again, in a refreshing way, in a way that it's not just Bible thumping. It's like, no, this is the way life works best when individuals and community or individuals in the many coexist in something called community. And the nasty versions of those is individualism, like you're talking about, mm -hmm. but also collectivism, right? The many, mm -hmm. the sacrifice of the individual. And it's like, okay, so uh, I don't know, thoughts about that? Like, how does this, how do these things that we're talking about, it's very interesting and we brought it to the ground a lot, which is really good, but how does it start impacting the level of like culture and how we relate to one another? Mm -hmm. Cause we're these image barriers, like you talked about, we're these mini logos makers or potential logos makers. How does it impact how we interrelate and even down to how we garden and do other things? So like, you know, how, right, does, right. It, how does it impact all of it? Well, I think on the, on the politics score, I think, a lot of the things that are dividing these different camps, uh, you know, we tend to think that the, the disagreements are all at the level of ideas. Hmm. That if we could just like talk more, if we could just kind of get the ideas spelled out, uh, that then we could get along and see things the same way. Uh, but really, I think a lot of the division comes down to passions, comes down to sins. It's that we're, we're deeply motivated by envy of those who have what we don't have or we're deeply motivated by greed to preserve the things that we have and not, you know, not care about other people, or we're deeply motivated by anger, or we're deeply motivated by these other things, right? And so um, I actually think that uh, in order to sort of find that real community that you're talking about, uh, not just collectivism, not just atomistic individualism, uh, what, what we really need is repentance. And this is another reason why we need God. I, I don't think that we can achieve that through the coercive mechanisms of the state. I don't think that passing some sort of policy through Congress is going to solve the problems, which doesn't mean that we, uh, if anybody is hearing me say <laughs> that we should sort of check out from the public square and not engage in politics, I'm not saying that at all. I go, go vote, go engage. I think a lot of good can be done by passing policy through Congress, okay, or through, you know, getting somebody to the Supreme Court or whatever, like, the, those are those are good things. But at the end of the day, that's not actually going to achieve community, if there hasn't been any repentance of the, the deep things in our heart. And I don't think that that's the kind of thing that could ever be accomplished through state mechanisms. 
you, you have to have God. Yeah, <laughs> I think you actually have to have the miracle of grace uh, that's given to us in baptism uh, that's received in the Eucharist. You have to have the miracle of, of Jesus Christ to be able to actually deal uh, with that deep sickness uh, in our heart. Um, otherwise, we're, you know, we're just going to keep on using the various idea structures as uh, veils for our passions to uh, get what we want from each other. And isn't that the definition of, uh, you know, we tend to think of, I say we, but oftentimes if you were to ask even just the person on the street, what is sin, it would be breaking God's rules or something like that, right? And I guess in some weird technical utilitarian way, that's what it is. But it's not just arbitrary rules from God. It's like breaking the fabric of reality as it's meant to be. Mm -hmm. And not just doing that, um, doing that in a moralistic way that's justified with like, and that's the, the Garden of Eden. It's, it's an old story, but it's like the story of every person. It's, it's literally the road to hell being paved with good intentions, you know, in some respects. Like, it, I don't think they were perfectly motivated, but they tried to justify their motivations as pure. And uh, we did this for good reasons, right? This was nothing wrong with this. And uh, uh, anyway, um, and we see how that goes, right? In the story. But anyway, um, that's, that, that is so much of what we're up to as well. And, and you see that in ideas like justice in contemporary culture or um, rights in contemporary culture or responsibility in contemporary culture without God always ends up being sort of a perverted and distorted version of that. Like justice becomes a means for or a weapon for retribution instead of mm -hmm. a means of reconciliation, restoration, bringing, you know, reconciliation would be a good way of thinking too of what mm -hmm. the Christ moment's all about, right? Reconciling people, you mentioned the sacrament of baptism into the three-dimensional experience of the Father, Son, and Spirit for the rest of your life. Like that is woefully missing in a cultural definition of justice, for example. And uh, it, right. it really impacts right. everything, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I see this with my students all the time. Uh, you know, when we have a conversation around justice, I think this is a, you know, justice is a good concept. They don't start sort of from, okay, I really want to know the truth of what justice is. And then in light of that truth, then I'm going to go figure out my political principles. Right. Uh, instead, what they do is they say, well, what is justice? Justice, we're going to define justice. However, you tell me to define justice so that I can get the political outcomes that I want for my interest block, <laughs> right? So they, 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 this is called motivated reasoning, right? They've, yeah. they've started with the outcome that they want, and then they go retroactively hunt for a definition of justice that will give them what they want. Uh, and I think until you, until we all repent of that kind of thinking, these kinds of conversations are just, we're just spinning our wheels. We're not going to actually get anywhere. <laughs> exactly. And that's a, that's a, that's a, such a good example. It's a real example of, like you said, students or whoever it's a, cause it's a bipartisan issue too. It's a left, right thing. And like you said, repenting and bringing back reunion would be, uh, well, a solution to a lot of this, right? Cause yeah, it, it at the level of, yeah, the political versions of justice. Yeah, that rights and responsibility thing works actually pretty well. A lot of people have like a high view of responsibility and a lot of people have a high view of rights and they get goofy in that they make one the exclusion of the other. And it's, it's not possible in the economy and the reality of God and the logos and all of the miniature logos that we're interacting with. It's just not possible. 
okay, so we've, we've gotten very philosophical. We've gotten political, which, you know, happens from time to time, but uh, it wasn't nasty, unlike a lot of Facebook. So that was fun. <laughs> um, but let's, let's, uh, let's land the plane um, with some things I know you have interest in. How does any of the things we're talking about, um, or all of the things, how does it impact, um, I made a joke about it, but how does it impact our gardening? How does it impact our reading of a book? How does it impact just our, our everydayness? You know what I mean? Even, mm -hmm. We're talking about big things and thinking things and whatever, but even just the, the routine, what oftentimes seem rote, but shouldn't be because there are experiences or places to experience this infinite logos, right? So anyway, share on that if right. you would, as we close up. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think we could just circle back to that idea of participation that uh, if the platonic account of logos being in things and uh, what that logos is, is a participation in something higher, something eternal. Okay, if all that's true, uh, then that should radically restructure your ordinary experience of everyday life, of going out and gardening or going for a walk, you know. Um, the, to, to, to quote a wonderful Gerard Manley Hopkins poem that everyone should, should look up, right? Uh, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil, right? That as you're like, I, this happens to me, this is, this is my daily reality. You know, I tell, I tell people this and I think they kind of don't believe me, but I go for a walk, you know, and all the trees, all the sky, the the birds everything the, the car passing me on the road is all echoes of eternity it's it's all um i'm not a pantheist i'm not i'm not saying that these things are god obviously okay no avatar uh, yeah, but, yeah yeah but but they're they're um intimations of god they are um manifestations we could say uh, in a derivative sense, admittedly, okay, they're, they're manifestations of God's goodness, of God's beauty, of God's love for me in particular, of God's love for all mankind, um, of God's justice, of God's ordering principles. Um, you know, I, I, I forget who it was, uh, you know, some ancient or medieval thinker talked about you have the two books of revelation. You have the book of scripture, but you also have the book of nature. Uh, and that we can, or as, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? That you can just look at, you look up at the stars, you know? And so as I'm gardening, you know, and I'm getting my hands dirty in, in the dirt and I'm, I'm, I've, I'm dealing with this concrete individual plant right here in front of me. Uh, or as I'm cutting the flowers from the garden and I'm putting them in the, in the bottle and I'm setting these lovely flowers on my dining room table. Uh, all of this is, it, 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 it feels to me on a continual daily basis, like a joyful dance, mm -hmm. like interacting, everything is sort of spinning around in a harmonious, beautiful elegant uh, unfolding of God's goodness. Um, quote another poet, uh, T.S. Eliot, in the first of the four quartets, you know, he talks about God as the still point of the turning world. Hmm. And around that still point is the great dance. Uh, and he says, there 
the dance is and there is only the dance all reality is the the dance around that that still eternal point um and i think you really can live your reality that way i mean i, I again I, I tell people this all the time and they're like oh yeah whatever you're just like this like there's no way you actually like uh live that that's you know you don't just eat poetic, a twix bar right? man like or whatever yeah 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 <laughs> you have yeah, a moment <laughs> But I'm telling you, like, this is my daily life and it's wonderful yeah. and I have a great time with it and I would never want to experience the world in another way. And I think that people who don't make the effort to uh, see eternity in time are crazy and miserable and I don't understand why anybody would live that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, dude. I was like getting like uh, moved just in hearing you share about it. So I believe you. It's got to be real because it's there's something to... Um, that idea, it's, um, I don't mean that people are not human if they don't do it, but it feels like you're being more human when you do that. You're, you're infinitely present, but you're not doing so in some weird isolation or some emptying yourself way. It's like, you can literally go out into the world. And there's something so fascinating about what you're talking about too. When you think of very practical things like the printing press got invented like some 500 years ago or so. It's like, it's like we're, we're talking, nature was like the, preeminent teacher right and so um, mm -hmm. finding ways that aren't pantheistic that are uh, God honoring but ways to enjoy savor and experience and participate like you said in God um, outside of just thinking of ourselves as brains on a stick or thinking things would be refreshing for myself I think mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully anyone listening for sure and I, I th and I think this is a perspective that uh, you know you can cultivate it takes some effort it takes some sort of reorientation of your default worldview. Um, but I think it becomes easier and easier with time. Like the more you make the effort to see your daily reality that way, the more it becomes just your default, easy, automatic way that you see reality. Um, so I, I'm not talking about some sort of like, you got to really like work yourself up to some sort of difficult mystical <laughs> experience where you then have this like vision, uh, you know, and, I'm just talking about, yeah, like I'm driving to work and I'm enjoying the color of the sky and I'm yeah. enjoying it as a manifestation of God's goodness. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's and just, I think that can just become your default uh, experience. That's so good. Yeah. Cause you're tapping into, um, well, as you do it, you get a nice feedback loop going where it's enjoyable and it's like, so of course you're going to have like a motivated reason to do it more. Right. So, that's, thanks for sharing that. That's really helpful. Um, I will I will commit myself to making some reorientations this week. I hope anyone listening does the same. Um, but Dan, um, I love listening to you just uh, make smart things sound understandable. Um, but um, if <laughs> other people want to do that, they should follow you. It's DT Scheffler on YouTube, right? Uh huh. And also, so I'll yep. put that in the show notes so people can subscribe to you. And then. Um, how else can or should people follow you? Or is there, are you doing any regular writing online or anything that people should follow? Uh, yeah, so danscheffler.com uh, is, is sort of my regular blog. Follow me at Twitter, also at Dan Scheffler. Um, and find me on, on Facebook as well, also uh, Dan Scheffler. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm sure we will, but I'll say it. We, we should do this again around some more topics. Um, again, because you're insanely helpful. So I appreciate your time, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I'd love right, to. Yeah. Have a good one. You too.